Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. This morning, we're actually keeping, we're coming back to the Luke series. If you're new, this series might be new for you, but we're going through the book of Luke and we're looking at Jesus as a model for what it looks like to live life as someone fully filled with the Spirit of God, walking in power, in spirit, in truth, that Jesus as fully man and fully God, he actually exhibits for us what this Spirit-led life looks like. And so today when we come to the text in Luke, we're gonna be in Luke 5, uh, verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, open there with me. And we're just going to continue in worship and looking at Jesus uh, with the word, with the scriptures this morning. So if you're in chapter 5, it's verse 17. You can read with me. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. My hope for us today is that we would get to see Jesus and react that same way that we would leave here rejoicing in who God is, the truth of who Jesus is, and just every time that we encounter him to say, I have seen a remarkable thing. Every time we look at him, that we would be a people who rejoice, that we don't miss him, and we're able to say, I have seen a remarkable thing. Pray with me right now. I just wanna, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to reveal yourself to us. Whatever you want us to see, we just wanna see you more clearly, Jesus. We come and we just, we, we listen to your word and we worship you, Jesus, and we say that all, all we want is to look at you. That we would have that same heart, that same, same mind that says, oh, I've seen him and I leave rejoicing. That it can't be, it's not contained to an hour of my time, but it's that we leave this place, God, just rejoicing in who you are because we got to see you. Just reveal yourself, Jesus, however you want. We just quiet ourselves right now. We bring our attention back to you and say, whatever you want to do, Jesus, whatever you want to do. Amen. 
So with that in mind, there's a lot in this text that we could look at. There's the Pharisees, right? And we can always use the Pharisees as an example of kind of the like what not to do in the Bible. Uh, we look at them and we see these people who are just ready, ready to accuse. They're ready to find something wrong with Jesus. Even the fact that they're in the text at all is kind of Luke cueing you in like, eh, it's going to get a little hostile somewhere in there. And that's the Pharisees. And there, it'd be easy to spend time there, but that's not, not what we're going to do this morning. Like I said, we're going to keep our eyes just on him and what he wants to do. The same goes for the, that's a amazing healing, right? There's a paralyzed guy that gets placed in front of Jesus and he says, oh, I'll forgive your sins. Oh, also pick that mat up and go home. You're fine. And the guy picks it up and walks away. That's an amazing healing testimony. That is the impossible happening because of the presence of Jesus. But I actually don't think that that's the focus of this story in Luke. As amazing as that healing is, and I think we should sit and we should ponder that of what it means for the impossible to be possible, that's not the main thrust of where this is going. The main thing that Luke is doing for his audience, to the Pharisees, to the people, is he's saying, look at the authority of Jesus. That the question that's asked by the, by the Pharisees, they say, who, like, what authority does he carry? This guy, he's blaspheming. Obviously, he doesn't have the authority of God. And the rest of this story, from the healing to the red words, the words of Jesus, are to say, no, I'll tell you whose authority it is. I will tell you that I have authority on heaven and on earth. And that this is one of the first places in Luke that we see Jesus assert himself as son of man. And we're going to talk more about what that means in just a little bit. But that's this morning where we're going to go, is we want to look, because I think that question is just as important for us. What authority does Jesus have? What authority does Jesus have in our world, in our day-to-day? -day? What authority does he have in me? Kind of like what Jake was saying earlier, like all these different aspects of our life, are they surrendered to him? Does he have authority there? And when we talk about authority, I do want to talk about it the way that the scriptures do. The word that we see here used in Luke is it's a Greek word called exousia. Um, and it means the right, the capability, the power. Sometimes it's translated to, to a total power, complete power. It's not an office. It's not just this thing of like that, oh, the police have authority in Newburgh to go get criminals. Or teachers have authority in a classroom to tell kids to be quiet. It's bigger than that. It's this total authority, this total power, total capability. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about what Jesus is asserting. And the first thing that we see in the text is that Jesus does have the authority to forgive. The first thing we see out of Jesus' mouth when the paralyzed man comes before him, the first actual words he speaks are, friends, your sin, friend, your sins are forgiven. This man hasn't spoken up about his need. It's probably obvious that he's paralyzed. They lowered him on his mat. He's not, not moving. But the friends haven't asked Jesus what they want him to do. They haven't said, oh, here's the most important thing, Jesus. Jesus looks at the man, and with his authority, he forgives. He honors this image bearer and says, no, you are my friend, and your sins are forgiven you. This is a time in history in this text where actually people believed that it was your sin that caused your sickness. So it was, it was the fact that you, actually, a lot of people still believe that today, that it's your sin, it's the evil that has actually caused your sickness, that God has given you this sickness because of what you've done wrong. And so what Jesus does is he flips this on its head. And when he sees the man who obviously is asking for healing, he says, no, the most important thing is that you know who you are. That you are a friend and you are forgiven. You may still be paralyzed, 
but you are a friend and you are forgiven. Your sin is not like, it's, you're not your illness. Your sin did not cause your illness. I love you and I call you forgiven. It's important that we are not people that point to disaster sickness as a punishment from God. Jesus never said that. He actually says later in Luke 13, the exact opposite. He disassociates sin from suffering. He says that actually the, the sickness that you see on this man, it's not, I didn't give that to him as punishment for his sins. What Jesus actually says is, no, first I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to show you who he is and that it's separate from the sickness that you see in him. Jesus has the authority to heal the whole person, the inner and the outer. And Jesus' authority to forgive, that line, friend, you are forgiven, is what spurs that question from the Pharisees. Luke is showing uh, that the Pharisees are these people who they're, they're watching. They're kind of waiting to catch Jesus in something. They're people who are quick to call things out, quick to accuse. But in this story, right, there's a crowd of people that friends have just came, broken through the ceiling of a house, lowered a man in front of Jesus, broken probably all the social rules in getting him there. And the Pharisees haven't actually said anything. They haven't said, oh, how embarrassing for them, or hey, sit back in your seat. What makes them speak up is that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's the stir. Because immediately their minds go straight to accusation. Who is this Jesus? He speaks blasphemy. They question his authority. They question who he is. Because they would have known, the, the Pharisees would have known, prophet or priest actually could forgive sins in the name of God. So even not, they could say like, oh, we actually don't see Jesus as any of those things. We don't think his authority comes from God, even though Luke told us in the very beginning that his authority was from God. Anyone watching this situation, anyone watching the life of Jesus knows where his authority comes from. Anyone who's willing to see can see that Jesus' authority comes from the Father. Their pride as those who are ultimately faithful to God, faithful to the law, actually caused them to quickly discount what God was doing, who he'd given authority to. But Jesus answers that accusation with something that they can see. And that's the second element of Jesus' authority that we see in this passage is the authority to heal. Jesus establishes his authority in the unseen, his authority to forgive by what he does in the seen. He heals the body to say, oh, I can do both. Forgiveness of sin is a really great claim, and you can't witness it with your eyes in a moment. But Jesus exhibits his authority to heal to show that he can do both. Jesus evidences an invisible reality with a visible act. He exhibits his authority as from God and not from man. Like I mentioned, in earlier in verse 17, we do see that Luke tells us exactly where the power comes from for Jesus. He says, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. The reader already knows where Jesus' authority comes from. It's the Pharisees that need to be addressed. And why? It says in the text that the Pharisees only thought it. If they only thought it, they didn't say it out loud to anybody. Is it really that big a deal? Do we really need to go after this? But as soon as they think it, Jesus addresses it. And I think it's because what we believe about his authority reveals what we believe about reality. This is actually a great act of love for the Pharisees. For the Pharisees, they believed that God's authority wasn't with Jesus. So the reality for them was, oh, Jesus is a blasphemer. They couldn't see Jesus' true authority. They couldn't even get close to who he was. They couldn't start asking the right questions, like, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Son of God? They couldn't get there because they were so decided in who, who had the authority. 
And Jesus, I think in a very lavish act of love, questions their thinking. He out loud questions them. He's too good to leave them just to their thoughts. He's too good to say, oh, think whatever you want. Doesn't, doesn't really matter. Doesn't affect reality. But it does for that person. What that person thinks fully affects their reality. And I think that's something we do all the time. And I, I get this from like a, in a political standpoint, the think whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. But when we're talking about Jesus, you can't just let your neighbor think whatever you want. That's the heart of evangelism is that, oh, if you don't think that Jesus is king, like let me tell you time and time again. Because he is so good. What you believe about him matters so much that it will shape the reality of the world if you believe that he is king. I can't walk through Newburgh and say, oh, well, like, as long as I know Jesus and everyone else, think whatever you want, you're fine. I cannot see the Jesus here saying that. Think whatever you want, it's fine. No, he says, I hear your thoughts and I'm gonna challenge them with my authority. I'm gonna give you a visible display of my authority because I love you that much. I'm gonna heal so you understand that I am, I have authority from God. And not only that, Jesus meets their thoughts with this action, but what Jesus does even more is he says, I have authority from God, but I'm gonna give you even a step further. Jesus calls himself the son of man. He says he has authority as the son of man. And that's the third element of Jesus's authority. And probably the most important is that Jesus is making a claim, not just to authority of God, but God himself. So who is, who is the son of man when you hear that in scripture? What's really interesting is that title is what Jesus uses the most often for himself. It's not actually Messiah that he claims or Christ that he claims most often. It is the son of man. And this title actually comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel. It's a vision that Daniel has. Um, he has a prophetic dream. And in the dream, there's beasts rising up from across the earth and they're prideful, violent kings. His prophecy is, he points forward to what's gonna happen, but also points back to Genesis, where the very original humans chose sin, chose the beast over what God had. They chose a lesser authority to say, okay, I'm gonna believe you, I'm gonna trust you and walk your way. And they let the beast win. And even in that moment, God comes and he says, there will be, there will be a man who does what you cannot. There will be a man who will be stricken by the beast, but will not be overcome. He will overcome it and he will crush it. He will bite his heel, but he will crush his head. In Babylon, where Daniel's living at the time that he gets this vision, God, there is beasts at rule. It's a culture ruled by their sin, ruled by violence, by evil, but in this vision, Daniel sees what the courtroom of God looks like. He sees what the destruction of the beast looks like. And in that destruction, Daniel sees not one, but he sees a second divine throne in this vision. This second throne is the one that humanity left behind when they gave up the authority to be partners with God, when they gave up what it means to be kings and queens rulers. And the throne is empty because in this vision, Daniel, there's no one that's been able to do it. There's not one man, as we look through scripture, that's been able to take back that throne. There is not one man who has been able to defeat the beast, so to speak, and to take the throne at the right hand of God. But Daniel sees this man in this vision, the one who is able to overcome, and he calls this figure the son of man. A human who rides a cloud in God's presence and sits on the divine throne to rule the world. Partnership is renewed, and humanity worships the Son of Man alongside God. This is no ordinary human. This is a God 
human. This is Jesus, fully man, fully God, but as fully man, able to take back what the enemy has stolen. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And this kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When Jesus is about to go to the cross, he claims the victory of the Son of Man. He says to the high priest in Matthew 26, 64, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on, the cross finished it. The cross made it so at that throne, Jesus could sit on it and say, I took back what the enemy had stolen. I have crushed his head. Jesus claims the authority of the last Adam, that though through all, through the first Adam, all have sinned, through Jesus, all are made alive. Romans 5.17 says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who received God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We often, when we talk about the cross or when we take communion and we talk about what, what work did Jesus do there, it's easy to say, like, I remember hearing this growing up all the time. Oh, Jesus died so your sins could be forgiven. That is such a small piece. Look back at the text earlier today. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. He had not done that yet. It is not that God did not have the power to forgive before the cross. He did. Was it the final sacrifice? Yes. But if it was just for forgiveness, it almost seems that it was a pointless journey. If all the cross did was allow sins to be forgiven, couldn't we have just kept going as we were? But the cross was where Jesus took the throne of the Son of Man. The cross is where partnership was restored. The cross is where it was possible for humanity to enter back into relationship with God, into a partnership. No longer enemies, but friends through the work of Jesus. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The work of the cross reconciles us with the Father. The work of the cross triumphs over God's enemies. It says who gets the authority. It puts to shame the powers and principalities of the world. It leaves them disarmed. Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. They are in retreat. The work of Christ invites those who believe him to be partners in his kingdom work here and now. Hebrews 12, 28 says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. 1 John 5, 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. When we look at the cross of Jesus, if we see only his sacrifice for our sin, we see in part. We, don't, we miss the great invitation to be these kingdom partners of what he actually afforded. If, our, if when we look at the cross, when we look at Jesus, we say, thank you, Lord, that I get to be with you for eternity. Yes, that's so big. But thank you, God, I get to be with you now, right here, right now, walking with you with power and authority that you have granted me because of what you did. The enemy does not have the high ground. The reality is that Jesus has authority, that the enemy is in retreat, 
like we just read in the scriptures, the cross has made a public spectacle of the powers and authorities that have tried to take away from what God is doing, from darkness. There should be no question for the Christian of where authority lies, of what reality is. And why, why does this matter? Why does it matter that God has ultimate authority? Probably I could have asked all of you when you came in here, or a lot of you, you're coming to church, like, do you think Jesus has authority? Yeah, of course, of course he does. But does it change how we live with him? Do we really believe that on all of earth and all of heaven, that everything has been given to him? That it is under his feet? The ultimate authority of Jesus actually impacts every moment of our reality. It's so important that the world sees the visible work of God, just like Jesus did. Like, let me show you visible work so that you can know the invisible reality of who holds the authority. When we, we at church here, when we pray, we pray for healing and we ask for words from the Lord and we wanna see visible manifestations of God, it is so that we can attest to the world of the invisible reality that Jesus is king, that he is coming back for his people, that the authority is not, evil doesn't have the authority. I think it's really, really easy to look around and often be like, oh, evil has a lot of authority. You can look at like what happened in Texas and have your heart broken that that kind of evil exists and say, oh no, evil must be powerful because it can do that. Or you can look around at the wars that have happened throughout history. We can look around our own neighborhoods probably and say, oh no, evil exists. But seeing great evil does not mean that evil holds greatness. That is where we get it. We get it twisted so often is we see something so ugly that we say, oh, there must be power there. It has no power. That is the deceit, is that we would see evil and believe that there's nothing we can do. But there is. Jesus says that, there, that he has authority to bring light into darkness. The deep grief that we feel as Christians, it is so valid. We should look at evil and be grieved. Jesus is grieved. But we don't retreat to the corners. We don't retreat to where it is safe and say, okay, I'm just gonna bide my time, Lord, come get me, this world is toast. No, Jesus came so that light could be taken to dark corners, so that the authority that he bought on the cross could be taken all throughout the world, that we wouldn't get to be, we're not people crippled with fear. We don't live in a low-grade fear because we see evil around us. We live with no fear because we recognize who has the authority. It's Jesus. And when we believe that, when we believe that Jesus has all the authority in heaven and earth, we live in wisdom, and we go wherever he says. The scary place, the fun place, the good place. We go wherever Jesus says. We take the evil that we see to him, and we say, God, what do you want to do about this? How can I partner with you in my city, in my spaces? And it's not only these extreme examples of evil that I think makes Jesus' authority so important for us. It's the, it's the day to day. It's those things that we do day in and day out that are changed by who he is, by his authority. The things we maybe would call mundane are completely transformed when we believe Jesus is who he says he is. Okay, if you believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, how do you pray for your neighbor that doesn't know him? Do you pray for them? If you believe his authority, you do because he can move, he can reveal himself. We believe that he wants to save all people and we pray for our neighbor as we would for one of our own family. If your friend is suffering, how do you respond? Is it with platitudes that feel pretty socially safe? Giving enough distance, having the right boundaries? But the friends that we see in Luke who believe Jesus' authority, they went and they picked their friend up 
they went into his life, into his room, and they picked up his mat, and they were strong where he was weak, and they carried him to the feet of Jesus. So when our friends are suffering, do we give them their space, or do we come and say, let me carry you to the feet of God? I, maybe I don't know if I can do anything for you, but I trust in his authority, and I'm going to carry you to his feet. And I'm not just going to look at you and say, I'm praying for you, bud. That's good. Pray for your friends. But they literally brought him to Jesus. It wasn't a platitude. It was an action. It was an action that trusted who Jesus said that he was. With that crowd of people, they broke through it all because they said, no, his, I trust his authority, and I love my friend, so I'm bringing my friend to him because it's the only thing that's going to change anything. What do you do with your time? How you look at the future? Are you afraid of the future, of what it could hold? Does your time kind of feel like it flies by you, like it's wasted? Or do you look forward with hope, no matter the hardship you see, because you believe that Jesus really has made an embarrassment of evil? That when we see it, we believe him, that he's conquered, that with a word from his mouth, everything can change. How much more do we care about what we put in our minds, how we feed ourselves, about what we consume and how? Because we, do, we believe that, that no day is wasted because I'm partnering with God. I wake up in the morning and I'm a partner of God. Jesus has made it possible that I get to walk in authority in this world and I'm not gonna waste my time on things that distract me from him. I was, this week, as I was uh, preparing this teaching, I felt just really scattered. It was one of those times I was like, I've got nothing to give, nothing to say. Like, Lord, I was like praying. I was like, just give me something, something, something good so I can take it and we can be done. It's fine. And I, I didn't get a theme from him. I didn't get a revelation that was like, here's where you need to go. His invitation in my time of uh, wanting revelation was just come worship. So I sat in my living room and I was like, this doesn't seem as productive, but knowing the Lord, I've watched them for a while. I was like, worship is always very productive. So I sit down and I start to worship and the song that comes on is, um, it's called None Like You. And I think we've sang it here before, but the lyrics that really caught me say this. There is none like you. You alone are worthy of all honor and praise. There's no other name. Jesus, Jesus. The name above all other names. Jesus, Jesus. The name above all other names. No other name can save me. No other name can restore no other name can heal my heart. No other name but yours. And I think in that moment that he ministered to me and just reminded me of why, why we do what we do. Why do we come on a Sunday? It's because we recognize our desperate need for him. Because we recognize, Jesus, I want to encounter you. It's not about like, I mean, our worship team is amazing, but they lead us in encounter to Jesus every week. That's why I want to come worship. I come in there, I have friends here that I love so much, but I don't, we don't, can't come here for the people that we love or that we wanna see, we come to see him. Because when we're fed by him and we encounter him, that's when we leave and we're changed, how we live out there every single day. And it changes what we do when we walk out the doors and when we, we're back at home with our family and we, re, we remember that his name is really what we need, that it's Jesus who restores. When we encounter pain, we're like, oh, I actually have the solution, I know his name and I can tell you what it is. And I share that story, not because uh, it's just about like teaching on a Sunday, but I think I have a lot of times in my life, and maybe you guys too, where it's just like, what do I have to give? 
what do I have to give today to my relationship, to my jobs, to my kids? I'm tired. I don't feel like I have anything to give away. And we, we, we can get numb, tired, retreat. But I think that feeling, that feeling of what do I have to give is actually an invitation. Every time that we feel it, it's an invitation to be reminded of where real authority lies, of who Jesus is. It's an invitation to just come to his feet, to turn our eyes toward him. It says in our weakness, he is strong. So when you're feeling weak, go sit with him, and I promise you will be strengthened. Turn your eyes towards Jesus. Tell him how you feel, that Jesus, I'm weary, but I know that you're here, and I'm going to sit at your feet. Because I, if nothing else, Jesus, I would just get to see you. Let me see your face. When we notice in our life that drift of distraction, it's like, oh, I feel like I just lived a week and what just happened? Just turn to him. It doesn't have to be complex. It's like the bread rising. Just sit at his feet and wait and see what he does. Wait and see how he builds you. There's this, this sleepy state of mind that I think the church is getting shaken out of. That we're in, I think we're in an awakening moment for the people of God, that we would be a people who stand up and we're like, no, we trust this authority and we are not asleep, we are awake to the reality of God. There's this uh, C.S. Lewis and the Screwtape Letters, if you guys have ever read that book. Screwtape Letters is kind of weird, but he wrote it as a, a demon is teaching another demon how to draw people away from God. So he'll talk about the enemy and he's talking about God. And there was this quote in there about nothing, about how the enemy uses nothing to distract us. And it goes like this. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong. And nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. In the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, in drumming of fingers, in kicking of heels, in whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. The reality of the Son of Man on the throne, of Jesus with us, Holy Spirit indwelling his people, is the great enemy of great evil, and the great enemy of nothing, of a life that would want to be wasted on nothing. Jesus says, no, no, no. You will not be overcome by great evil, and you were made for so much more than just drumming your days away. If you're sitting at his feet, you cannot waste your time. If you're sitting and wanting to encounter Jesus, I promise you, when you leave, you're not going to waste your time. You'll see him. When we sit with him, we see him, and our lives are changed. Because of this reality of the Son of Man, there's a paralyzed man who gets healed at the feet of Jesus. Jesus speaks identity over him and sends him out with a new life, sends him home. Because I think what Jesus, he sends a paralyzed man home so quickly because I think you really, you just have to encounter Jesus and you know that home, everything is gonna be different. Once you've seen him, once you get who he really is, you will be a person who stands in awe, in rejoicing, in every place that you go. Not just when you're standing, looking in his eyes, but with us, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. He's with us everywhere we go. Our like default position should be awe and rejoicing in who he is and the authority that he carries in the name of Jesus. 
There's no other name. That's my one prayer for this people is that we would just be a people so obsessed with the name of Jesus. <laughs> that when we get out there, every single like person that we encounter, places that we go, that it's like, oh, I have so tasted and seen that Jesus, there's no other name. There's no other name. And that this, like there'd be a town that maybe calls us crazy. I don't know, whatever they wanna call us. But I wanna be known as a person who loves the name of Jesus, who's been transformed by the person of Jesus that my life is shaped by the authority of Jesus. Every part. That every day you'd wake up and just say, search me, God, because I trust you. And I think today, um, as we end, there's no, no better way to honor his name than how he told us, with the body and with the blood. If you guys want to stand up with me. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.